0: Welcome to Book to Where Two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson.
1: And I'm Lydia Snedden. Welcome to the David James Keaton episode. <laughs> yeah, that's right. One author read for so long <laughs> that we had to give him his own episode. Um, and uh, yeah, this is it. David yeah. James Keaton, <laughs> reading from Fish Bites Cop. Uh, nine Cops Killed for a Goldfish Cracker. That's what right. What the name of the story? Yeah. Love that story, too. Great stuff.
0: This dude, before he got started... He was, all, he was all proud of himself. He's like, I'm going to read really fast because I know it's a little long, but I'm going to get through it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, he edited it down from the actual version that's in Fish bites Cup just to get it down to a really slim 37 minutes. <laughs> <this.
0: laughs> I'm opening up the book right now just to see how many pages it is. looks like it's about... Um, ah, 22, 23 pages, which doesn't seem that long, but I guess when you're reading it out loud to a crowd full of people, it does
1: it kind of gets a little bit on the on the longer side mm-hmm. Of course, listen to um, you know changes from the story to include C.J. Edwards, our host for the evening um, being on the flip side of uh, David uh, James Keaton bashing authorities um, which is uh, what he's become known for now, right? Yeah like, That's his kinda, thing Yeah, yeah.
0: I could see him. It's funny because he—he, he we're doing these in the order that they—that um, they read. So C.J. Edwards went right before him, and it was by design. And I, I was watching David during Edwards' story, and I could just see him getting all worked up about it. Like I could see the <laughs> defiance in
1: his eyes. So, um, uh, Rob and I'll be back in like forty minutes or so after after David Keene.
2: <laughs> Who's here from the University of Indianapolis? Awesome, and it's my understanding that you are all forced to come here. Is that true? Anyone? No? And who is your professor? He is here as well? He's in the... Everyone's going to the bathroom. There he is. (laughs) Awesome. It's my understanding that he's responsible for some of the students here tonight, so I, I appreciate that. All right. Our next reader, if you can call him that. Uh, David James Keaton and I have this uh, ongoing uh, feud um, due to his book Fish Bites Cop, uh, which is sort of kind of an anti-authority thing. Uh, David James Keaton's work has appeared in over 50 publications, including recently Grift, Chicago Quarterly Review, and Noir at the Bar. His con- contribution to Plots with Guns, number 10, was named Notable Story of 2010 by Story South. And last year, he won a Spine Tingler Award for the best short story on the web. His first collection, Fish Bites Cop Stories to Bash Authorities, was released in May. Um, and he didn't send me the details, but I'm understanding that he has another book that's coming out shortly. Is that true? Oh, next year. Okay, It'll give me some breather time. Um, I actually am uh, making my way through his collection of short stories, and they are pretty awesome. They uh, are and, offensive. And they are offensive, and that's that's why we like them. Um, I'm actually uh, planning a cop's review of Fishbite Cop shortly. I'm um, trying to get, with my busy schedule, trying to get that done. Uh, so, uh, David, I don't know what he's reading. It has something to do with the police. Um, So, uh, and I'm sure we'll all enjoy it. So David, if you wanna come on up.
1: Thank you, CJ.
3: Can you hear me? Good? Good. Let's think, Jed broke this fucking thing. Godzilla. Okay, um, I did bring a police story you found so much pleasure in your story when that dog tore the shit out of that poor, innocent civilian. So, I thought this would sort of be a counter-narrative of the police. Not necessarily negative. Um, It's called, Nine Cops Killed for a Goldfish Cracker. But nine cops don't die in this. um, Technically, one guy dies twice. So... Also, Sal, a nun gets punched in the face, so you're going to love this. That's just for you. Okay. The junkie folds the $1,000 bill in half nine times, swearing it's a new world record. Jack watches the money transform into a tiny green cube, disgusted that everything he's owned, every record, movie, and dirty magazine. Even his best platform shoes could be reduced to a piece of paper so small it couldn't effectively wipe a spider's ass. What the fuck are you doing, CJ. I said no, Jack mutters. Ignoring him, the junkie shuffles over to the huge aquarium along the wall, an endless green coffin so thick with green stink and muck that during previous visits, Jack never had the imagination to discover anything alive in there among the empty beer cans, dirty dishes and long forgotten plastic scuba divers. The junkie dangles his idiot's origami out into the smoky space between them and tosses it into the fish tank. Equally insulted and confused, Jack watches the green cube swell and soak up the stagnant water. It's just starting to unfold when a a streak of copper pushes through a dark puff of fish shit and algae to gulp the money down. Jack stands up so fast that the card table flips off his knees and three coffee cans expel soggy cigarette butts into his face to remind him of his first kiss. Why the fuck did you do that, Jack shouts, running to the tank while slapping gray ash and filters out of his greasy curls. Because it meant more to me than it did to you, the junkie laughs. What do you care? My money now. Jack shakes his head. That prick had insisted on a $1,000 bill to pay the debt. Not just the amount, but that particular bill, last circulated in 1969, series of 1934. Not that rare, someone shrugged. It took a little time, but Jack finally found one. And When he first saw it framed behind his parole officer's desk, Jack could hardly believe his luck. Then he started to doubt that this one slip of green paper would solve all his problems, until his asshole P.O. turned around to yell at another ex-con on the phone, and Jack had time to slide the frame a little closer and read the inscription, Legal tender for all debts, public and private. Then he started to believe it might after all. It looked like something he'd seen a cartoon with all those extra zeros, and he broke, it, broke in and stole it the same night before he changed his mind. A $1,000 bill was not that rare, but still rare enough to be worth almost twice as much as the little numbers in its corners. Jack knew that the junkie would erase his woman's debt the instant he held it under a streetlight and first gazed upon Grover Cleveland, glowering up at him in that big Nietzschean toilet-brush mustache, something that most junkies usually slick and hairless as grubs. They could never grow themselves. When he first set foot in the junkie's apartment a year ago, Jack noticed the goofy fucker had a telephone shaped like a football scrawny as he was the junkie claimed to be a football fan Cleveland Browns of course when the Browns still had a team Jack figured that was why he wanted Grover's tiny portrait so bad that he was willing to pay so much for it then there was that goddamn cookie jar he remembered his dad smacking a football out of his hand once you dial where the stitches used to be the junkie told him when he first saw when he first saw him studying the phone too bad it's not a real pig skin though huh how long before your parole officer knows you swiped it Hell if I know, I swapped it out with some Monopoly money, so maybe you won't notice for a little while. Wait, what Monopoly money? Well, they don't make a $1,000 bill for that game, so I put in two 500s instead. Good job, dumbass, he will never notice with them being bright orange and all. Who cares, if he sees 20 x cons a day, maybe more. Hey, you wanna see a magic trick? And then five minutes after that, he was folding the bill, and that's where it all started. 10 minutes after that, Jack was still punching a purple stain on the floor where the junkie's head used to be. Jack calls his woman on the football and tells her that the junkie let him keep the cash. Claims he put her on a payment plan. And says maybe they're going to be okay. She tells him that if he can, she she tells him that if he can pay the landlord by seven o'clock that night, they won't have to move out. He's trying to listen, but he can't help. St- he can't stop staring into the green water of the tank, trying to figure out which one of those fish swallowed the money. The monster tank that had seemed empty before now is a swarm of goldfish nipping nipping at each other's butts, apparently eager for another thousand-dollar snack. Then he hears a distant siren and knows he doesn't have the time to perform some kind of half ass surgery on a dozen fish bellies to find the bill. His eyes dart around the room, panic setting in as the voice in his ear starts squawking louder. Now his woman wants to know why he wasted a quarter in the payphone when she was only a block away. If you hang up right now, you can get your quarterback, she whines. Probably not, he thinks, hanging up anyway. Wait, did she say quarterback? He suddenly has a brainstorm and he runs through the bloody pile of junkie towards the filthy kitchen. Something crunches under his shoes and he almost trips. That's the thing about junkies, he thinks. Celery where their bones used to be. He sweeps a year of empty cereal boxes off the counter to reveal the grand prize. A goddamn glass cookie jar shaped like a football, full of rolling papers and fortune cookie fortunes that never came true. He feels the weight, tries it out under one arm, then the other. He decides it was meant to carry goldfish. He grabs a coffee can off the floor and empties the stubs and ashes. Excitedly scooping and splashing the green water like a baby's first bath, he eventually manages to wrangle all the goldfish into the cookie jar. At the last second, he snatches a glass ashtray shaped like a starfish from the corner of the tank and shakes it dry, just in case he needs it. He screws the lid back on his cookie jar football, the tiny handle where the stitches used to be, and holds it up to the light to watch the little critters swim around. He's wondering if he could spot the money cube through one of their stomachs when he hears a car door slam downstairs on the street. Tucking the glass football under his arm and the starfish ashtray in his pocket, he bolts for the stairwell. It's 300 yards to the slumlord, he thinks. That's only like three touchdowns. When he reaches the end of the hall, he sets his football down in a pile of pizza boxes, pulls out his starfish, and stands behind where the door, behind where the door will swing open. He glances at the jar again. Where the fish are agitated and doing little figure eights. He's glad he doesn't have to kill one of them right now. Why bother them? Money's not going anywhere except with him. He doesn't think twice about killing the cop. The door swings wide, and when he creaks it back, and when it creaks back to reveal Jack, he buries the starfish in the cop's face, right through the bridge of his nose. It goes in so deep that the lenses of the cop's sunglasses snap shut around the ashtray like a Venus flytrap. Snorting blood, sinuses collapsing, the weight of the cop's utility belt. Along with the cop's typical lack of physical fitness, drags him down the stairs so fast. Drags him down the stairs so fast that Jack has to chase after him, high-stepping after that bloody blue ball all the way down to the basement. He starts to think that killing, killing cops might be much easier than everyone thinks it is. He kicks and stuffs the body out of sight behind the last row of steps and takes his gun, a, a 357 Magnum. He thinks that's a good trade for a starfish. All you need is something to protect, he tells the crooked pile of buckles and blue as he wipes his hand. That's the key. You can drop any cop if you're protecting something. Anything at all, really. He spits, retrieves his football, and counts the fish out loud. Seven, eight, nine. All of them are still swimming. Outside, he squints down the street, mapping his path to the goal line. All he has to do is run across the parking lot where the car wash used to be, through the alley where the baseball card shop used to be. Up the steps where his mother used to be, then give the money to the slumlord where the record store used to be. Never talk about that stain where the junkie's head used to be. But running with anything under your arm looks suspicious, especially something shiny. And Jack is rounding the corner where the miniature golf course used to be when he's arrested. It's impossible, asshole. Don't you know there's no way to fold any piece of paper in half more than eight times? Bullshit. It was nine. It was. It's a new record. I saw him do it. Jack is in the back of the cruiser talking through the cage to the cop in the front seat. The football full of fish is sitting on the dashboard while they wait for Jack's name to come back from dispatch. The cop turns the football around and around looking for any sign that Jack's story is true. No way, he says. Can't be done. I saw it. You thought you saw it. What are you, a magician? I used to be. Let me guess, Jack Snickers, the amazing Andy. Fuck you, where were you running again anyway? You know, like Andy Griffith, get it? Yeah, no, I got it. I'm telling you, that guy palmed your money. You can't fold any bill more than six times. After that, the area can no longer be manipulated by human hands. The force required is exactly 256 times more than when you started. That's true, by the way. I know what I saw. You don't know what you saw. That's my point. A magic police officer, huh, Andy? How does that work? Can you get out of an underwater coffin? Can you get out of the belly of a fucking whale? Because that's what I really need right now. I can slip handcuffs, the cop says. It's easy. Jack's amazed. Cops always get chatty when dispatch takes too long. See, if you have long fingers like me, you just put the middle one down so the cuffs click on it. Then you slip your hand out. That finger leaves enough of a gap to get loose. A similar technique can help you pick pockets, too. You can take away a slower cowboy's gun. But I can't tell you all of our cop tricks. Jack notices him fiddling with a snap on his holster, something he recognizes as a tell in poker. And if there was one thing Jack hated more than cops, it was fucking poker players mostly because they dress like magicians i can't wait to fucking kill you jack mutters what nothing jack figures he doesn't have long before they find that dead cop crammed under the steps with the starfish where his face used to be and he's kicking himself for telling the amazing andy about the thousand dollar bill at all but there was no story he could come up with that made any sense to explain why he's running down the street with a cookie jar full of fish he's glad he tossed the starfish face cops 357 into a random mailbox before he got pinched though he even put the flag up you should go back and make that man give you your money back. And if you don't have any warrants, of course, and your money's still in that apartment, I'm telling you. Which apartment did you say that was? Jack is ignoring the question. Did you know that it's impossible to eat more than nine crackers, the cop goes on? Six and 60 seconds is a limit. Your mouth won't make enough spit to keep, uh, get them going down your throat. What kind of crackers? Regular crackers. What about goldfish crackers? Something like 20. You know that's the same age when I first shot somebody? It's just a job we do, you know, sicking dogs on people in bathtubs. We don't ask to be, we don't ask to be heroes. Oof. He trails off, leaving, leading to mumble into the radio on his shoulder. Then the wheels around, then he wheels around to face Jack through the divider. Tell you what, why don't you stop talking a while? The cop says, "Me stop talking? Jesus Christ!" The cop has his hand in the cookie jar, rooting around and splashing all over. He catches one of the fish and lays it on the dash while Jack furiously punches his door. But before Jack can blink, the fish is ripped in half. Andy holds it up, shaking the end with the tail, showing Jack it's empty. Then he reaches in and grabs another fish, rips it in half. Jack grinds his teeth so hard one cracks. He wants to know if the junkie really fed a, a fish the money too, but he can't stand to watch this cop shred his little fish. He starts wondering if he would have—he starts wondering if he would have been able to gut them all if he had the chance. The fish, of course. I don't think I could do it. Jack thinks because. It'd be kind of like playing Russian roulette, except you'd want the bullet. And of course, it would be with fish. Another cop car is approaching. and amazing Andy quickly, quickly drops a third fish back in the bowl, tucking the glass football down by his feet and out of sight. He forces a fake yawn and an exaggerated stretch to cover these movements. And right then, Jack knows what he'd do if he had the chance. Not because the cop killed his fish, but because when this cop yawns, Jack swears he sees his tongue curl like a cat's. But Jack was born with long fingers, too. Piano-playing fingers, his dad once laughed. And then his dad bent his Jack's fingers back with his own digits, short as sausages, black as crickets, to drop Jack to his knees. It was the day he found out Jack had tried out for the football team. But tonight, Jack uses those fingers to cut half moons into his palms until his hands are red. Then when the third cop spins him around to switch the handcuffs, he notice Jack's bloody wrist and stands him up straight, turning to the amazing Andy. Uh, What's wrong with this guy's... The third cop starts to ask right when Jack slips a hand free and unsnaps the cop's holster. Glock in his fist, Jack spins and pumps three shots into the amazing Andy's chest, aiming for the badge, a target over their hearts that Jack always thought was an amazing idea. Officer Edwards, it reads. (laughs) Then he drops and puts a bullet in the third cop's spine as he's running for the car. The cop crumples against his own wheel, dead before he hits the ground and no hands to stop his mouth from cracking the curb. Jack knows he's gone. So he can't concentrate on the amazing Andy. Andy's face is so blue for a second, he thinks he's looking in an empty uniform. Then, in a, another mad minute, Jack thinks his clothes are deflating. Then, Jack sees his eyes open, aware, a hate filled glare of black and red. He claims Andy's 38th Special from his holster. It's old school, feels good. In the glare of the cruiser's headlights, Jack quickly grabs the keys from the third cop's belt to take off the other cuff. Then he starts thinking about the money that might not be in that fish after all. He glances at the cop's ear, pressing against his hubcap like he's listening to a seashell for any sign of the ocean. Time for an experiment. Behind him, a radio rumbles indifferent, Officer Down, I repeat Officer Down. It turns out you can fold a cop in half only once, no matter how hard you try. Even if you jump up and down with both feet. But if you get the wheel of their cruiser, you can get at least three. With a football full of fish nestled comfortably under his arm, Jack is running again. He has a Glock in one pocket, a 38 in the other, and a stomach full of more excitement than fear. He looks for some landmarks. It looks like the amazing Andy drove him about three blocks in the wrong direction, putting him back behind his own goal line. Just like a penalty, he thinks, loss of down. He moves fast to avoid a delay of game. But when he's gained back all the ground he lost from the arrest, he notices a fish floating in the cookie jar. He stops to catch his breath, holding it under a street streetlight. He remembers this street light well. It's where he and his woman had their first kiss, then their first fight five seconds later. It's brighter than the rest, never goes out. It's the only street light harsh enough to see anything through. Your hand, your girl's skirt, even someone's head. He holds the fish high, looking through its red belly like a flashlight beam between the webbing of your fingers. There's nothing inside it, nothing at all. He starts to raise the bowl over his head to check all the fish. Nothing in these guts, he thinks. Maybe I should feed them. But he's interrupted before he can remember where the pet store used to be. It's cop number four walking the beat, twirling a nightstick like a lifeguard whistle. And he's the easiest one to kill yet. He's still trying to sneer when the slug stretches lips into a smirk. He watches the fourth cop's shoes wiggle as he shoots him one last time just to make sure. It's the same dance his own toes do every time he jerks off. See, he thinks firing again. How can you feel bad when they clearly fucking love it? Jack's about 50 yards from where he's sure the pet store used to be when the fifth cop gets a drop on him, quick-draw squeezing his 9mm parabellum fast enough to send a spray of gunfire across his scissoring legs. Drop it, boy, down on the ground, now. Like I'd fucking drop this glass football, Jack thinks, as he takes two bullets into the meat of his thigh. The blood that fills his shoes are cold. The fifth cop expects him to fall, and Jack lights him up when he goes for another clip. But the shootout costs Jack more than he thought. Another fish is now floating in the football, and he's surprised at how upsetting this casualty is. He plucks it out, looking crazily for a bullet hole before he feels around for that lump of $1,000 bill. But this fish is empty, too. He looks down the street and thinks he's got to be about on the 60-yard line by now. Is there a 60-yard line? Well, there fucking well should be. A countdown should never be considered progress. Then he's running again, faster than he has in 20 years, feet slapping from the effort, his cookie jar splashing and spilling. Fish trying to stay level, water getting low. Why are you running all the time, his dad once scoffed. Only suckers run. Now Jack knows he was wrong. Sucker makers run. Widow makers, too. He's actually smiling to himself when the taser darts hook his neck. He expects the same surge of electricity he last felt when he got in a fight on spring break and he got his feet tangled in the stereo. Spring break in the city meant a baby pool on the rooftop. But the jolt never comes. He r- runs out the wire and the darts ripped free with a bacon strip of his shirt and skin. Then another dart catches him on the lip. He slows, again ready for the jolt, but nothing. He decides the cop's taser must be broken because he doesn't feel shit. Then remembering the way the sheep's head played dead when you reeled him close to your boat, only to snap back to life and stab hapless hands with those goddamn spines. Jack falls down to his knees, setting the glass football down like an egg. He shivers, giving the worst performance in the history of fake electrocutions. And when the sixth cop is close, right before his head vanishes under his hat in a Fourth of July hammer splash of sparks, pink and black powder flash, his black cop eyes go big like a man who realizes he's hooked a sperm whale instead of a bluegill. Fuck that, Jack tells him as he dies. More like you hooked a submarine. Stepping over this cop's corpse, curiosity gets the best of him, and he tests the taser barbs on the water and the football. There's sparks, but the fish don't seem to care. He thinks maybe they have the same small heart he does, and he's really starting to love the little bastards. In the fit, in the water, five fish do a lap, but they start floating. Another cop is waiting on the corner. Cop number seven? He's a big buck though. Worth about three regular ones. That's he sees what's under Jack's arm and he laughs. I used to play football, a seventh cop says, hosting his ruger and forgetting the snap like they always do. Try to get by me. I used to play, play football too, Jack said, until I realized the ball wasn't made of real pigskin. At this, the cop looks mad, finally getting a joke, and he gives a pivot foot he was going to use. Another tell, tattletails, all of them. Jack runs, jukes, spins, skips, even jumps over a candlestick. And in the end, just like magic, he slips the tackle and comes up with a cop's weapon. Who used this Ruger on him, saving the shotgun shells for later? But he won't keep the pistol. He's still digging, the thir- He's still digging his 38. Police issue since the 20s. They never should have stopped. Hell, how much shit can one man carry? asked the seventh cop, who's crawling towards a drain as if it's got some kind of answer. Sometimes you gotta make a choice your fish or your gun. At some point, the seventh cop is saying he doesn't deserve to die, saying he was only working at night to do seatbelt checks at the corner, maybe a drunk stop or two. It's so easy to dehumanize these bastards, he thinks, and the shotgun shuts him up forever. And this murder feels like a crossroads, only because Jack's now on the 50-yard line, and there's finally less field in front of him than behind. Deeper into the rampage, the water is so low that the tiny dorsal fins start breaking the surface. He needs to fill his football back up, and he crashes through the door chimes at a gas station, tracking blue blood and feathers in across the tile. I had to cut a scene where he went to a pet store where he became sympathetic and talked to this guy, and it was really, because it's too long. but. At this point, you'd be feeling sympathy for him. That's why he has feathers on his feet. Okay, I'm sorry. Without looking up, the clerk grumbles that employees-only restroom bullshit. Shotgun behind his back, cookie jar in his hands. Jack clears his throat and sets the ball down next to the animal shelter donations and beef jerky. Listen, here's the thing. A goldfish swallowed all my money, and I need to pay the rent in about 10 minutes to keep a roof roof over some miserable pregnant bitch's head but tonight I've done so many things I never thought I'd do just to keep these fish alive, and I'm really not sure why. And for some ridiculous goddamn reason, I feel the need to protect them no matter what. So if you could just let us swim in your toilet a little while, you'd really be helping me out. Jack counts to 11 as the clerk looks up, chews some gum, and soaks in this story. Go ahead, the clerk finally says, as if Jack's fable made any sense at all. Back through the cooler past the power drinks. It's the most compassion Jack has ever felt for another human being. But not for fish, he loves these little guys. He cups the hand under the faucet and splashes his face, his bowl, and the cold water revives the goldfish just as much as the clerk revived him. Jack feels like he could kill every cop on the planet for him, then fold him in half nine times. Outside the gas station, he kills his eighth cop, a woman of all things. He's starting to forget they existed. Freeze, she screams. And he almost does, her voice carrying more more bass and authority than all the previous men put together. But this has been his problem with women all his life. So he has no guilt as he empties his Glock, the rest of the clip overwhelming a carefully placed shot from her Sig P229, meant to stop his heart, but having no discernible effect. No guilt is all as he thinks back to all the role-playing porn he snuck in the bathroom in junior high, and how women in any position of authority, doctor, teacher, librarian, hell, even a four-star general, were his favorites, with one exception. A ragged magazine he stole from his dad, one with the especially baffling title that should have reduced any chance of intimidation of the resulting chronic whiskey dick, Busty Cops 3, calling all eunuchs, but when he opened up that magazine, nothing. It was only the spreads where women were dressed as cops that killed his erections and he was paying them back for it, every one of them. Jackson field goal range now, but he chooses to run. He stiffs arms a pimp, he stiff, arm, stiff arms a bum, stiff arms a crazy cat lady that stinks like piss, who makes a surprising grab for the ball. Breathing hard through a hole in his chest, he takes a timeout and an open all-night drive-through where the miniature golf course used to be. There's a girl at the window he's been eyeing, and he thinks tonight's the night to make, take his imaginary relationship to the next level. When he first saw her, he just, she just said hello, all formal. Then it was, hi, last time it was, oh, hey. It was all the encouragement he needs. Jack sets senses recognition when she sees him, and he's right, but it's only because she can see him on the camera before he gets to the window. It was that recognition from 20 yards away that he always mistook for incitement. Oh, hey, she says, and he's already in love. Hey, can I get some water for my fish? No walk up sir, she says, as a full minute ticks by. Then, so, like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, I'll take a, gold, a bag of goldfish crackers, please. We only sell those with our chicken soup. If you give me a a bag of goldfish crackers, you'll never see me again, I promise. Coming right up! She throws a handful of bags at him and slams the window shut. Running again, he's thinking he can swap the crackers out for the goldfish or some kind of ruse, but the crackers don't look anything like he remembers, and they're way too small, they don't really look like goldfish, and there are way too many flavors to choose from. He plops a couple in the football anyway, but the experiments a failure, they stain the water like piss and blood as he watches them dissolve. It was a bad idea, sure, but nowhere near his worst idea that he had today. Jack puts his ear to the bowl, actually wondering if he could hear the money kick around in one of their bellies. Then he listens for the ocean. He's knocked up a baker's dozen of mistakes in his life, but this was the first time Jack actually felt like a daddy. But in the bowl, there's still almost as much fish as water. Almost always as much fish as water. Running hard, running hard inside the 15-yard line now, goalposts in sight the slumlord. He looks up. Goalpost is right. He's the only motherfucker on the block who can afford a satellite antenna that big. Jack passes a priest locking up a church. Sunday morning already? He punches him in the face on the way by, a tenderizer right hook where his smile used to be. Why? The priest wails from the sidewalk. Because it's the nicest thing I've done all day, Dad. I mean, Father. Over his shoulder, he sees the priest slump and vanish under his long black coat, and Jack can't resist a joke his dad told him after he punched his first nun on Sunday. <laughs> I thought you'd be tougher than that, Batman. <laughs> running, running, running. Those two bullets make his legs faster. One bullet made his heart stronger. He asked the, he asked the next cop where the fuck a, what the fuck a seatbelt check is anyway. That's like saying a smile check or something. I mean, I would just make sure I'm not smiling by the time you, I got to your car. What the fuck are you talking about, the ninth cop asked, hand hovering over his holster. How could you prove I wasn't wearing it? Jack asks, hands up, elbows high, but he's still scratching and stretching hard to reach the spot on his back where the shotgun is sleeping. It's a light sleeper. Just put the fish over your heads and hands on the ground, son. But the shotgun is awake and already coming over Jack's head. Uh, I mean, hands on the fish and heads on the... Wait, wait, the ninth cop draws his Springfield XD, a small gun, a woman's gun, it's something the new kids are picking, and guesses. It's no match. Boom! There's another dead fish in the football, only three left swimming. He cuts the dead one open with a thumbnail to see that it's empty, and he almost cries while he's doing it. But no, it's just blood that splatters his cheeks. He's losing too many fish. He needs to kill another cop to even the score. The tenth cop dies screaming. So for kicks, Jack checks his badge. Sergeant airs? Yeah, he caught some air, didn't he? Jack decides to gut this one, what the hell, and when he runs out of thumbnails, he uses the edge of the handcuff. Turns out, they look just like us on the inside. The fish, not the cops. But he swears their hearts might be a little smaller. The cops, not the fish. Slumlord, then home, no, home, then slumlord. He's got five minutes, he needs to see his woman, needs to see if this was all worth it. He paid her debt with a junkie, he's gotta pay the rent next. He even paid for her teeth once, even though she went even though she only used the appointment to get painkillers and never thanked him. Jack calls her on the payphone to put a toe in the water and check her mood, but she's yelling at him already, never any good news with her. Why the fuck are you calling me, she screams. I can see you from here. He runs up the steps of their building, the burning smell he recognizes immediately as home, the smell of smoke and ash. used to tell a caveman to run, but to Jack it meant dinner, or maybe their first kiss. She turns the corner of a cigarette in each corner of her mouth. Yep, it's just her, no dinner after all. Her arms are crossed, and a gas can is balanced on eight months of stomach. Where's the fucking rent, she says. She's threatened to build, burn down the building before, every time they fight. He even woke up soaked in the shit once, a smell so thick it cured him of his boyhood love of fucking gas and glue. He shows her his 38, pleased with the way her cigarettes sag and shot. Hold on, baby, that's not what I'm trying to tell you. It's not that... It's not this gun that makes me a man. It's how many fish I got in my football. Have you gone nuts, Jack? Do you have any idea how hard it was to get here? She starts to notice the blood in the bullet holes and slowly sets the gas can down. He starts to notice her noticing and slowly sets down his cookie jar. Then he's suddenly rabbit-fucking her against the cleanest wall, and for a couple seconds, he loves her as much as the girl at the drive-thru. When he's done, his toes wiggle so hard he feels they're finally bust through his shoes. Then they both stare at each other over their shoulders, they both stare over each other's shoulders as the feeling fades from love to like to hate back to indifference. He tries to tell her the story. At least I can't get her any more pregnant after that, he thinks. Once they're knocked up, it doesn't have any effect anymore. Maybe I change the baby's eye color or something, blue to brown. One more generation will all be brown. Go on, she sighs. He looks at the clock, hands down, this is the craziest 20 minutes he's ever had in his life. Baby, have you ever been on the toilet and all the sounds and sensations coming from your body seem to indicate that you're taking a shit, but then you look in the bowl and you don't see anything at all? No. Well, that's our relationship. (laughs) Get out, she screams. Gas can back up and ready. Wait, you you misunderstand. You're not listening. I'm saying we're like magic. His woman is flipping out, saying his bullshit story about the junkie. Even if it's true, the money might dissolve. And she's starting to reach for his fish. Again, he wonders the $1,000 bill has never been in there at all. Which one is it? She screams, splashing around the cookie jar with her yellow claw. You know what? He sniffs, moving to the door, pride wounded. I take back every night, every romantic thing I just said. Good. Jack takes a random fish and puts it in his pocket. He's still got a minute left on the clock. So he runs across the hall to his other woman's apartment, the one that's slightly less pregnant. He tells his... He tells his other woman to stash this goldfish. She stands in the doorway, tears in her eyes, shaking her head, fish swimming around in her coffee cup propped on her belly. She hugs it tight. She stashed guns and drugs for Jack before, but this, feel, this fish feels more important than a wall. She puts it on top of her television, hoping he'll pay the rent tonight for her too, so she won't be evicted. Then he runs back across the hall to kill his first woman. His first woman, not his first woman. The first woman he killed was cop number eight. But when he kicks open the door and sees what she's doing, he totally knows he, he can do it. He can't do it. was a typo, I'm sorry. She has a pile of goldfish flip-flopping on her ironing board, fish lips pulsing, and her knife is coming down when he hits her like a linebacker. You can't kill him. I already named him, he pleads on, from the floor. You haven't even named our baby. She stabs him instead, stabs him again. Jack gives her one good punch right in the belly. A shoddy figures doesn't count as domestic violence because... They were pretty sure it was going to be a boy, and his son should be able to fucking take it. Then she stabs him real deep, and he changes his mind about the fight pretty fast, deciding instead to save as many fish as he can and get away from her. Crawling for the bathroom, fish crammed in his pockets. Even in his mouth, he hopes the last person in there remembers the flush. On his hands and knees, he realizes that he'd try to keep them alive forever if he could, never look inside their bellies, just so he'd never know they were empty all along. But none of them are moving when he sticks them when she sticks him hard in the lower back, right where his spine used to be. Before his last breath, he attempts to give his babies a proper burial. He drops as many as he can in the toilet bowl and pulls the lever as he falls, but they're too big to go down. His head cracks the rim and the lights go out. He surprises anyone when he starts breathing again. He opens his eyes to see one of the fish in the toilet bowl under his chin, It's still swimming in circles. Too big to flush, he says, just like me. He struggles to his feet, grabs the fish... Snatches the glass football from his woman's hands and he's running down the steps. He sees more goldfish in the corner of his eye still twitching in the cookie jar. Jesus Christ, how many goldfish are there in the world? Out in the intersection, the amazing Andy is standing in his way. Andy's not so amazing, he's clearly seen better days. Blue uniform now purple, black tie wrapped around his head covering the hole where his eye used to be. He holds his other gun, a thirty-eight Special of course, the grip wrapped in rubber bands so he can hide it under his shirt against even the sweatiest skin without slipping. Remember me, Andy asks him, just like that song, Nowhere to run, nowhere to run. Back to nine, Jack says, cocking the shotgun. During the firefight, Jack soaks up three more bullets. Andy loses an ear and at least half his piano lessons, along with the right side of his skull. And when Andy's gun starts clicking, Jack snaps as many of Andy's long fingers as he can so there's no more magic tricks. Then he handcuffs him. Still struggling, Andy babbles about Metal rings and handkerchiefs and Jack spins one of his hands completely around, snapping it free from the burden of his wrist forever. It's past seven. Overtime. Sudden death. Bad move, he says. The only thing I hate more than cops or magicians. His own gun against the turkey burger where the cops' nose used to be. Jack pulls a tiny bag of goldfish crackers from his back pocket, dangling them in Andy's face. Bet you can't eat a hundred. I never said I could. Forcing Andy's mouth open with the barrel of his own gun, he pours the bag into his maw. Only they're not crackers that are tumbling out; they're gr- real goldfish. Jack ran out of pockets a long time ago. He taps his temple to, he taps his temple with the gun to keep Andy's bloody mouthful crunching and munching and crunching away. All oh, those flavors, Jack muses. It's weird. There's no seafood flavor. No actual goldfish. Goldfish cracker. What other flavor do you think they need? I know. <laughs> Andy bleats around a mouthful of fins. They need a flavor called Sweet Revenge. Andy splits the pulp and scales onto the. Andy spits the pulp and scales onto the street, trying to wipe his mouth with his shoulder. I'm the one out for revenge. You shot me. You never seen the movies. I'm the unstoppable revenge machine in this equation. Consider yourself stopped. Jack says, trying to tur- curl his tongue and taste it too. He pulls the trigger, and he really isn't that surprised when it clicks. But he is surprised when the clicks keep coming from all directions. Jack turns around and around the four-way stop, and he sees the parade of blue and red, guns cocking, car doors popping. There are 38 specials and Remington 187s for everybody. He starts counting guns and cops. He counts cop number 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, and 22. Jesus Christ, he laughs. How many cops are there in the world? That's too many players on the field. He can't believe no one blows a whistle. Standing in the intersection, black tar cooking his bare feet. He remembers how he used to play connect the dots with the white lines on the road outside his house, dragging a brushload of white paint, once even a jar of mayonnaise, past any intersections where the lines stopped. He connected every road he could find, knowing that the black void between those lines was the only thing that made people stop, that sense of a drop off into blackness. It was this void that made a normal person stop, it was not those red signs at all. Jack looks up, squinting as the street light flickers, as bright as the sun, burning through every cop like an x-ray. He sees they're not blue inside, after all, just gutless. He stands up taller than he thought possible, tucks his football under an arm, lights a last cigarette off the tiny orange jack-o-lantern, smiling from the smoking tip of his hot barrel. Then his nostrils flare in recognition as he realizes his woman switched all the water in the football with gasoline. His fish are cooked white, no more gold. He swears they're still swimming taking the fuel into their gills, sucking the burn like sweet nectar. He spikes the cigarette and he spikes his ball. Fire and fish fry everywhere. Touchdown.
2: Oh, my God, where do I begin? You remember that thing I said about offending everybody? Well, I think we just covered it.
0: All right, that touchdown was... David James Keaton reading Nine Cops Killed for a Goldfish Cracker. One of his more weird and out there, but really hilarious, co- cool stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, David James Keaton's an entertainer, and, and I'm I'm trying to think of a time that he read that I've seen him where it wasn't just thoroughly entertaining, uh, aside from from the solid writing, you know, just that it's sheer entertainment, so... Um, no surprise that we love David James Keaton. He's almost a part of this show, and we're uh, glad to see him read again. I'm glad we got to hang out for a little bit last night.
0: Yeah, and the nice thing too, he um, uh, yeah, back when we reviewed Fish, Bite Cop, Fish Bites Cop, and he was on the episode. He mentioned uh, a friend, Sal Salvatore Payne, mm-hmm. um, that he's known forever, and he was he was giving he's telling that whole story about uh, um, the. <laughs> It was the ass-eating story in his in his in his uh, book, yes. and he wrote that as a way to one-up Sal when they were doing like live readings and stuff. And that's how he met his wife. He told that whole story. So Sal was actually there, and he's a teacher at the uh, University of Indianapolis, and he made it mandatory <laughs> for his students to come to the reading. So
1: uh, that was kind of entertaining as well. Yeah, it, it and uh, and quite a way to bump up your your count for a reading. That's what we did wrong in Chicago. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we we didn't um, we, we got to buddy up with some professors next time.
1: Yeah, exactly, or someone I don't know, like elementary school teacher, like twenty four second graders showing up. That might get a little weird. Got to fill the seats. That's true. Got to fill that's all the I'm seats. Saying. So, all right, that's a wrap, part three, North Bar, Indianapolis. Um, come back tomorrow for the big grand finale. Les Edgerton, Scott Phillips. Until then, I'm Olivia Then, and I'm rebels. And keep reading. You gotta fight for your right!